I love the Old Testament. I love all the Bible. Amen. But I, I especially love the Old Testament. And, uh, I, I guess I love it because I'm, I'm contrary. And it's a portion of the Bible that very often people don't spend time in. And I'm just contrary enough, Brother Charlie, that I like it. <laughs> I enjoy getting in there and digging through there and finding stuff that's, that's not right on the surface. Amen. Uh, very often it's at the bottom of the box that the prize in the cereal box is. And uh, sometimes you've got to do a little digging to get to that prize. And uh, you can have all the lucky charms and all the marshmallows on top. I want to get to that prize. Amen. So I like to dig a little bit. And uh, I have found uh, rich soil as we have studied through the book of Amos and got some help from it. And I trust the Lord will help us again this evening. Amos chapter number 5 tonight. We'll begin reading at verse number 16. Amos chapter 5, verse number 16. Uh, the Word of God says, Therefore the Lord... The God of hosts, the Lord, saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! And they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord! To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness, and not light as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I hate, the Lord says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images." the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Father, we come before you this evening humbled at the presence of your word, at its power, at its message. Lord, at, at its applicability, at its aptness, at its timeliness in our lives for this June day that we stand here in the house of God. How infinitely wondrous is your word that it would be so well prepared for a time hundreds of years ago and yet speak as clearly as the voice of God to us today. I pray that you'd help us as we approach it to rightly divide your word. May we not do any, uh, any disservice or misuse towards it. But Lord, may we understand what you had to say to those in that day to whom this prophecy was given and also how it means and applies to us in these days that we're living in. And may it arrest our attention, Lord, and may it rest our wills from our control to yours. And Lord, may we walk away from this process this evening, having uh, given more of our lives to you and having gained more ground in our spiritual development. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. and We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight with the Lord's help on this thought. To what end... Is it? Now, the book of Amos, as many other portions of Old Testament prophecy and 
the minor prophets in particular, is occupied with this topic, the day of the Lord. Now, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is not abstract. It is not elastic in its nature. It is not meant to be applied to anything we choose to apply it to. But it has a very distinct and definite meaning, both to the people that would have read this, but also to anyone with a Bible in their hand. You can walk through the Word of God and you'll find that the day of the Lord is not a generic term, it is a specific term. And it refers distinctly to the day of God's judgment upon Israel. Now, I define it that way, or the Bible defines it that way, very carefully. For this reason, you'll oftentimes, when you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll read something, and it's talking about something that has happened from our perspective hundreds of years ago, and then the very next sentence, the very next, I mean, phrase will leap hundreds or thousands of years as far as chronology is concerned and start talking about something that is still yet to come. We've been studying for some considerable portion of time on the book of Daniel in our Sunday school class with the young adults and the older young adults and the young older adults and everybody that enjoys being in there. And I love each and every one of them. I wouldn't trade one of them for anything. But we've been studying through the the book of Daniel. And one of the things we have emphasized is the idea of foreshadowing in the in Bible prophecy. So God would often give a prophecy and there would be an initial or partial fulfillment. But that fulfillment, Brother Ken, would not be comprehensive. There would be things that would be said that could not be applied to an immediate application. I'll give you an example. The Bible teaches us, tells us in Daniel chapter 2 about a great image. And this great image is uh, the image of a man and it's made of four different types of material. It's made of a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and stomach and thighs of brass and then legs and feet of iron and eventually iron mingled with clay. And the book of Daniel is very explicit in telling us what that image represents. The, the head of gold represents the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the, his uh, empire was sort of vested in his identity and, and he represented or that gold represented him. The chest and arms of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire that would succeed the Babylonian Empire. Most of the time today when you hear secular historians talk about it, they'll just talk about the Persians. Uh, but uh, best archaeological evidence, and even something better than that, biblical authority and witness, reminds us that it was not just Persians, it was a Medo-Persian Empire in the early days of it. And then eventually the uh, old median portion of it was surpassed by the Persians. And then the stomach and uh, thighs of brass represent the Alexandrian Grecian Empire, the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then the legs uh, represent the Roman Empire. But you know, that that uh, prophecy goes on to describe how that there would be a great stone that would be cut out like a mountain. It would be cut out without hands and it would be hurled at that image and it would destroy, it would hit at the base of that image and destroy it and grind it to powder and that then that stone would grow into a great mountain that would fill up the whole earth and it would be an eternal kingdom. Now we can look back in history and we can see that head of gold. We can look back and see that chest and arms of silver and that stomach and thighs of brass and even the legs of, of iron and then iron mingled with clay. But we come to that stone that fills up the whole earth. We've come to something that we can't make application 
of, at least not in regards to historically. What that represents is the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that Roman Empire, it had a historical application, an initial and partial fulfillment in the old Roman Empire. We could really go on at length and we'll do our best not to, but it goes into great detail about the toes and about what they represent and different kings and so on. And what you find is this, the old Roman Empire, I'm talking about Julius Caesar, I'm talking about Marcus Aurelius, I'm talking about the old Roman Empire is foreshadowed, it is pictured there, and there was a fulfillment, but the fulfillment is larger, broader than merely that old Roman Empire. It looks forward to another coming empire that will be headed up by a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. So there was a partial fulfillment. There was an initial fulfillment. But there's something bigger going on beyond that. And when we read in the Old Testament prophets, we find this is a common occurrence. The Bible tells us in Roman or in Daniel chapter uh, number 8 about a little horn that would spring up. And that's representative of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes in uh, the Old Testament days and his withstanding of the Jewish people and defiling of the temple. But it also looks beyond Antiochus Epiphanes, looks to that man of sin, the Antichrist. I'm saying it's foreshadowing. There's a partial initial fulfillment, but it looks beyond that. Do you remember in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, do you remember whenever uh, Peter brings up the Old Testament prophecy of Joel? And he says, this day, this scripture is, is fulfilled, this is happening right in front of you. But now there are certain things that Joel prophesied that did not take place on the day of Pentecost. They won't take place till the tribulation period. So there's a foreshadowing there. In the same way, when we come to Amos chapter number 5, we find the Lord talking about the day of the Lord. And I define it as the day of God's judgment because it's true we can look beyond what's being mentioned here and look forward into a future time. Uh, The Bible calls the tribulation period where God is going to uh, allow judgment to transpire upon Israel as a nation. That will be followed by Christ returning in power and in glory and setting up an earthly kingdom. But there was also an initial fulfillment that they were looking towards. There would be a a sooner day of judgment that would transpire when God would allow the Assyrian behemoth, the Assyrian empire to march in uh, through the mountain passes and come and and, uh, sack the city of Samaria and Bethel and Gilgal and Dan and Beersheba and God would allow the Assyrians to take away captive the northern kingdom of Israel. So when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about that day when the Assyrians are going to mete out judgment upon them. But he's also looking beyond that to a day when the entire world will align itself against that little nation in the Middle East and will set itself in array against Israel and will persecute it. And uh, The Bible describes that the persecution will be so fierce that if the days weren't shortened, there'd be no Jews left alive. The persecution uh, would be so fierce that, that there'd be none elect that would remain uh, if God didn't cut those days short. And that's going to culminate, by the way, at the Battle of Armageddon when the army of the Antichrist and his allies meets there in the valley of Megiddo in the northwestern corner of the land of Israel and sets itself in array against Israel and against Israel's God. And then Israel's Messiah is going to break the eastern sky and come back on white horse uh, with a vesture dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. And he's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist. But before that time comes, there will be three and a half years of fierce judgment upon the land of Israel. Now somebody's saying, well, that's good, preacher. I appreciate the lesson, but what does that have to do with me? We're talking about the day of the Lord here. The day of the Lord. And that's what Amos is talking about. 
He says there's coming a day of judgment. That judgment is first going to come in the form of the Assyrians. They're going to march in here and they're going to take the northern kingdom captive. But he says even in the far distant future, and I'm not even sure Amos understood everything of what he was pinning down, he saw this vision. He may have saw it as unbroken. You know, the Old Testament prophets had no concept of the church age. If you look for the church in the Old Testament, other than in types and figures, you won't find the church there because the church was a mystery, Paul says. Mystery is something that was hidden and could only be disclosed by revelation. And so in the, in the Old Testament, and when I say revelation, I don't mean the book of the revelation, but I mean that God would have to reveal it to mankind. And uh, all this uh, business of the New Testament church and of a body of believers, spiritually speaking, called out from amongst the Gentiles to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by grace and faith accept Him as their Savior and be born into the kingdom of God. That In the Old Testament, they had no concept of that. So they'd be seeing this vision and it would be something that would be in the next maybe 50 years or 100 years and then it would skip over this entire period we call the church age. And then it would look to those end times because that's the next thing coming is the return of the Lord for His church and then the seven-year tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. And uh, it would look beyond and it would see that. So there'd be an initial fulfillment and then it would look beyond that and there would be a complete fulfillment. Now, here's what Amos says about that. He says in verse 16, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. He's talking about when the Assyrians march in, but he's also talking about the persecution of the Jews in the time of the Antichrist. He says, and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Then verse 18, he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. So he's seeing this impending judgment upon him. But he is also seeing an end time judgment that will transpire. And he makes this statement, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord basically involved three things for Israel. We're going somewhere. You hang in. It basically involved three things. One, it involved the return of Israel into the land. God promises He's going to gather Israel from the four corners of the world and bring them back into the land. The land that He promised to Abraham. The land that He made covenant concerning. He's going to bring them back into the land. Uh, by the way, another example, not a prophetic uh, foreshadowing, but of historic foreshadowing would maybe be the return to the land in 1948 or the reinstituting of them as a nation. I don't believe you'll find that event anywhere in the Bible. And good men would disagree with me about that, but I don't believe you'll find that event anywhere in the Bible. But it sure enough is significant that Israel became a nation again in 1948. Uh, but let me say this, whenever, God's, uh, whenever God brings them back into the land, they won't be uh, brought in with the veil of Judaism upon their eyes. They won't be brought in with the veil of secular humanism or communism or, or Bolshevism upon their eyes. They'll come back into the land with their eyes wide open to who their Messiah is. And they won't come back in merely to uh, build walls and launch missiles and fight wars. They'll come in and they'll be at peace and their king upon their throne. So the day of the Lord, it involved the return of Israel. Number two, it involved the restoration of Israel. In other words, and this is something that the disciples struggled with. They asked the Lord before He ascended, they said, well, thou at this time uh, restore the kingdom to us. What He was saying is this, ever since Nebuchadnezzar threw down the walls of the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the, the, the temple, we've never really been a free people since that day. 
That began a period of time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles, when Jerusalem is trodden underfoot, when Israel does not rest in autonomy. And even today, you can go to the land of Israel and climb up on that Temple Mount and you'll hear, uh, you'll hear uh, prayer bells or you'll hear prayer calls to a law sounding out and you'll see a mosque sitting upon the uh, Temple Mount and you'll see men walking around with uh, machine guns slung over their shoulders and you'll find fences and barriers and tension and strife. You can't tell me that Israel, as she sits in the land today, sits there in autonomy and in freedom. She doesn't. In fact, since that day that Nebuchadnezzar knocked on their city walls, till now they've not had autonomy. They've been trodden underfoot of Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is still instituted. And so the disciples looked at the Lord and asked a very simple question. Will thou at this time restore to us the, the kingdom? Are you going to kick all these Romans out and set up your throne and rule here and set up your kingdom? And the Lord, of course, says that uh, the times and the seasons belong to His Father and that this was not the time for it. But there's a reason they asked that because every single Jew understood that's what the Messiah would do. When the Messiah comes, He's going to kick Caesar out and He's going to set up a throne and He's going to rule and reign. That's why, by the way, it was so significant whenever their king stood before them and they said, we have no king but Caesar. You see, they said they really believed He was the Messiah. They wanted Him to be the Messiah. They didn't believe He was the Messiah. They wanted Caesar to be their king. So the day of the Lord involves restoration of Israel. He's going to drive their enemies out of their borders. He's going to set up His throne and His and His kingdom. They're going to be at peace and at rest all around them. And they will occupy the land the way God envisioned them occupying the land. I'm talking about during the millennial kingdom. You know that they've never occupied the full extent of the land that God promised them. Even during Solomon's day, during the golden age and epoch of their time as a people, they, they never occupied all the land that God promised they would. But one of these days, God's going to restore Israel. So it was a time of return to the land. It was the restoration of Israel. And here's why Amos asked the question. He wants to remind them that it's also the day of the Lord is a time of reckoning for Israel. God's going to judge them for their sins as a nation, for their iniquities. Now let me say this, chronologically that judgment will transpire before the restoration takes place. That's what the three and a half, last three and a half years of the tribulation period are. Their judgment of God upon Israel. God is purging them. God is bringing them to heal. God is showing them that He is their only hope and their only help. And there were some in Amos' day that sort of talked glibly about the day of the Lord. They said, man, I can't wait until the Messiah comes. And, and when He does, He's going to kick all these and insert various world empire here, depending on when they said it. They're going to kick these Assyrians out. They're going to kick these Babylonians out. They're going to kick, kick these Persians out. Uh, he's going to kick these Greeks out. He's going to kick these Romans out. Today, they'd look at each other and say, one of these days, He's going to kick the UN out or He's going to kick the uh, Palestinians out or whatever it might be. And they, they talked, Brother Ken, about this glorious day when the Messiah would come and everything would be set right and every valley would be raised and hill would be lowered. And to that, Amos reminds them that that day is also a day of reckoning. And they better not forget that that's a day when God's coming not just to judge the Gentile world, but to judge His own people as well. In light of that, he says, to what end is it for you? Now, some of you all are saying, I, we still ain't got to the message now, look, can I, can I make an application here? The church is not Israel. Oh my, you get in a mess. You'll have your, you'll have your, your mind or your Bible tied in knots. One of the two. When you try to make Israel the church or the church Israel. 
As a Bible believer, I have to believe there are three distinct groups of people in this world, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church, the living God. I, I don't believe the church is Israel. I don't believe the day of the Lord has any purchase or application as regards our effect or our behavior or our response today. When that day of the Lord transpires, the church is going to be out of here. Because Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica and reminded them that the day of the Lord has not come yet and that we are not appointed under wrath. Before we'll ever see that, the rapture of the church will take place. But now wait a minute, I do see a little bit of an application here. Because the things that are said about the day of the Lord concerning the Jew have a definite application to the New Testament Christian concerning the judgment seat of Christ. Now here's what it's going to look like timeline-wise for you and me. And some of these things, I, I don't know that I can answer every question you have, but best as we can read our Bibles, it seems like it's going to happen this way. The very next thing that could happen, and it could happen at any single moment, is the Lord's going to return and rapture us out. He's going to take us out of this world. Uh, Christ said uh, in John chapter number 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The last thing that was said to that little body of believers on the day when the Lord ascended is that this same Jesus shall in like manner come again and receive you unto Himself. The very next thing to happen is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also talks about immediately following that return, there's going to be a judgment. Now, this judgment is not to determine whether we're saved or not saved. It's not to determine whether we go to heaven or, or, or go to hell. That's all been settled by Calvary and by our putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But the purpose of that judgment is for us to be judged as stewards and servants in this life that God's given us. In other words, what have we done with the life that we have? You know what I find? And I'm just going to lay it out there so I can get started preaching and get done with this introduction. Somebody say amen to that. You know what I find? I find a lot of us talking about looking forward to the Lord coming back. But can I ask you this question? To what end is it for you? We talk about it. We're excited about it. I'm excited about it. But you know right after the rapture, there's a judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to have to give an account for the things done in our body. Whether they're good or whether they're bad. And I'm asking you, you that call that long for, that look for, not the day of the Lord, but the return of the Lord, to what end is it for us? When I think about these three things that uh, define or involve uh, the day of the Lord, it sort of reminds me of what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be for us. For instance, the, the day of the Lord, it involved the return of Israel. But you know, the judgment seat of Christ and the rapture, that involves the return of us. Not to the land, but to the Lord that loved us and bought us. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians that we'll be caught up together with the Lord and so shall we, or caught up together in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, us as New Testament believers, we're not looking to go back into the land, but we are looking to be returned back to our Lord. 
and in His presence. Not only that, I think about the restoration of Israel. God was going to make Israel what He intended Israel on being. And that sort of reminds me of what's going to happen to us as believers whenever the Lord raptures His church. He says, Beloved, now, uh, John said in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, when the Lord returns, uh, there will be a restoration of sorts. And it will not be as regards Israel going to the land, but it will be as regards the creation of man being restored to the place that God envisioned man occupying and man being. And then I think about that reckoning of Israel. Uh, Paul said this in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. He said, we shall all stand. Now he's talking to believers, not talking to unbelievers. But he says to all believers, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Gives us a little more information in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then he says this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. You see, when I see what the day of the Lord is to the Jew, it reminds me of what the judgment seat of Christ is to the believer, Brother Ken. I'm not saying there are not differences, and I'm not saying there are not distinctions. I'm just saying there are enough similarities that when we listen to the ragged voice of the prophet in Amos chapter 5, I think we find a warning here concerning what that day is going to be for us. For instance, I notice in verses 16 and 17 of our text that both for the Jew concerning the day of the Lord, but also for the Christian concerning the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a day when mirth will be replaced. Amos says to the Jews that there will be wailing in all the streets. And they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! And they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation, to wailing, and in all vineyards shall be wailing. Boy, I think about that phrase, in all vineyards. You know, the vineyard in the Bible was a type of the work of God amongst the people. Israel was a vineyard that belonged to the Lord. And in the New Testament, the church is described as being part of the true vine and being part of the vineyard. And it says that in all vineyards shall be wailing. I just can't help but think, friend, that one of these days we're going to stand before God and it's not going to be such a joyous time when we have to give an account for the things that we've done. There'll be a lot of things once we get on the other side of that judgment for the Fred to rejoice in. But I hate to tell you this, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, there's going to be a lot we're going to have to give an account for as well. Every single opportunity that we've wasted, every single message that we have scorned or buffeted, or rejected every single good grace of God that we have robbed and used for our own pleasure rather than for His glory. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot to answer for on that day. There'll be joy unspeakable afterwards, but on that day, I just don't think it's going to be a day when we're going to be singing songs. I think it's going to be a day when we're weeping for the missed opportunities in life. I think if Paul could say it's a terrible day, It's a day full of terror, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Then I think surely, man, somebody like me, I ought to be taking it seriously. It's a day when mirth will be replaced. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord 
is darkness and not light. And I sort of wrote it down this way. It's a day when mercy will be restrained. Now, I was careful in choosing those words for this reason. I believe God desires at all times to show us mercy. Mercy is part of His nature. He is a merciful God. He is full of loving kindness. But do we understand that on that day where God has been so merciful to us for generation after generation, decade after decade, that God has in long-sufferingness allowed us opportunity to repent, to do right, to get right, to put Him first in our life, to put the things of God where they belong in our life. You know there's coming a day when there will be no more days. There's coming a time when there will be no more time. And there's going to be a day when the mercy of God is going to be held back just long enough for us to as servants. I'm not talking about as sinners. Thank God that was dealt with on Calvary. We ain't trying to decide whether we'll go to heaven or hell at the judgment seat of Christ. That was settled long ago. But we are going to decide whether we've been a good servant unto Him. Whether we've been, whether we've been a good son, a good daughter, a good child, a good steward unto Him. And though it is in the nature of God to be ever merciful, on that day, Brother Ken, it's like the mercy of God is going to be pulled back long enough for God to say, now you're going to have to give an account for how we've lived our lives. I see a probing question here, and this really is the message. To what end is it for you? What's that day going to be like for you and I? Some of us will fare worse than others. Things are not all equal. I know we live in this world that has worshipped this elusive uh, figment of their imagination called equity or whatever you want to call it. But there's coming a day we're going to stand before God. I was listening to a, a preacher talking about this the other day. You know, God is not fair. He is just. And there's a difference between those two things. Uh, God, God is, his, his interest is not to come along and make sure that everybody has the same thing. He gives us the same starting point, the ground's level at the foot of the cross. But what you and I do with that life is dictated and determined by us. To what end is it for you? There's going to be folks who will fare a lot better than I will on that day when I, they stand before the Lord. How's it going to be for you? Are you going to be happy with the life you've lived for Him? Here's what that phrase, to what end is it for you? Here's what it means. Are you ready? Are you ready? We talk about it. We rejoice about it. We announce it every time that we have a service. We lift our hands in praise. I don't think any of those things are wrong. But let us never in the midst of all of that become so blind or so naive that we dismiss the fact that that's also the day when we're going to have to look our Savior in the eye and say, Lord, this is the life I've lived for you. I can add nothing more to it. I can change nothing about it, and I deliver it to you now in the condition it's in. We see a pointed question. Then we see a parable communicated. He said, it's as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Now, that's what's called a bad day. Flee from a lion and a bear met him. And the picture is sort of a guy that is out in the wilderness and a lion uh, jumps out into his path and he turns and he runs from me, runs straight into a bear and and all of a sudden he's panicked and he can't go back and he can't go forward and he takes off running and he finally he claws and fights his way and gets inside of his house and his, his, his chest is heaving and his breath is short and sweat is pouring from his brow and he thinks he's finally reached a place of safety and refuge and he leans against the wall to catch his breath. The Bible says a serpent reaches out and grabs him. Bites him and he dies. What's the point of that? Well, I'd say there's about two or three points to it. One is this. 
Uh, for that fellow, judgment was inescapable. He ran from... The, I, I don't know about you. I, I said it. That's a bad day. Can I just tell you something? At the risk of sounding uh, of sounding obtuse, can I just say that you know if you're if you're walking down the street and a lion jumps out in front of you and you turn around and run away from it and run into a bear and escape from the bear and run into your house and a snake jumps out the wall and bites you, you probably made God mad. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I think that's a safe bet, right? The picture is that it's inescapable. Try what he may, they're, they're, that judgment was going to get him, Brother Ken. Can I tell you something? Paul said we must all appear. All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. But after this, the judgment. It's inescapable. You and I, we're going to stand in front of God in a way even more real than the fact that we're standing here looking at each other right now. You and I, your, those, those eyeballs that are sitting in your head are going to look upon the majesty of the glory of God. We are going to stand in the presence of God. We are going to have to give an account for the things that we've done in this life, on this June day that we have lived. It's inescapable. I would say this, it's sudden. He thought he was safe. He thought he was safe for Charlie, but he wasn't safe. It came upon him in an instant. He thought he had reached a place of sanctuary and refuge, but it came upon him in a minute. Can I tell you this? We don't know when our life will be cut short. We don't know when our life will be cut short. It could happen any moment. It could happen in this next moment. That's one of the things that I think gives purchase and power to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If people think, well, I'm, I'm young and healthy and I live a cautious life and I'm careful and I try to take care of myself, and none of that could matter because Jesus could return in this next moment. And it could be upon you. Upon you. The question is, what have you done up to now? Because when that day finds you, you'll be judged based upon what you've done up until then. What have you done up until now? Where does your life sit right now at this moment? I remember one time years ago, I'll tell this short story and move on. Uh, Years ago, my brother decided he wanted to go start doing um, a a type of martial arts. And um, he found a place downtown that does does this what they call Krav Maga. You know what I'm talking about? The Israeli fighting, whatever. And uh, he said, listen, I want you to go down there with me. And I thought, I don't know why. They can whoop both of us, but <laughs> I can't help you if we get in trouble. But he said, no, I want you to go down there with me and check it out. And so we went down there, and uh, you could take a class for free. And the reason they did that is because they knew if you could survive one class, you'd probably sign up for more. Um, and so we went down there and did this class. And all it was, that first class, Brother Fred was just conditioning. And they, they, it was, it, it, they started us off by running circles around the room. And we, we'd be, we'd be running around the room. And then they'd say, now I want you to turn around, I want you to run backwards. And we'd run backwards. And they'd say, now turn around, run forwards, and we'd run forwards. And then they'd say, now I want you to crisscross your legs back and forth as you run. I did that for about 15 seconds. And I was so winded, I was about to die. And they had this bench over at the side, and I just fell down and crawled over there and laid on it. And I remember the instructor came to me. He said, man, don't you want to get up? Don't you want to? Come on, jump back in. Come on, get up. And I went. I didn't say nothing because I couldn't. He said, man, come on, don't you want to jump back in? Come on. 
And finally he said, hey, listen, man, you, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. But he said, understand that trouble will find you in whatever shape you're in. It'll find you in whatever. It won't wait for you to get in good shape. If you don't get up and, and learn this and get involved, what's going to happen if somebody attacks you? And I said, I'll die. <laughs> what I was really thinking is I'll shoot them. <laughs> but I didn't want to say that. I didn't know what he'd say to it. And, but, but, you know, his point was true. It's going to find you however you are, is what he was saying. Can I tell you, that day's going to find you however you are. Are you ready? Are you ready? You see, we see a parable communicated here. And then we see a pitiful conclusion. He said, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. Now, again, we have a just God. Now, what that means is he, he gives mercy and grace to those in need. But it also means that he, he, he holds men accountable for the way that they've lived. And here's what Amos is saying. He's saying, you're talking about this day as if it's going to be a glorious day. But he says, I've walked the length and breadth of your land. I've seen your false gods. I've seen your false altars. And I have seen your wickedness and your godlessness. And he said, I'm just telling you that day is a day of darkness and not light for you. It's going to be a day when you're going to have to give an account. Could that day be a day of light and not darkness? Well, I'd say this, for a better man than me, it could. But even the Apostle Paul said it was a day of terror. So suffice it to say, here's the question, what kind of day is it going to be for you? Are you going to be pleased? Or are you going to be happy with how you've lived your life? It's going to be a day when mercy will be restrained. Look at verse 3. This is strong, or verse 21, excuse me. Uh, this is strong language. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. They'd burn incense. God says, I don't want to smell it. He says, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts, the sacrifice they would give. He says, take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vows, but let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness is a mighty stream. You know, they had, they, they had a, a system of formal worship in the land. And that had not ceased. But again, they still worshiped. They had their own in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel. They had their own altar. They had their own, they had their own, uh, place of worship, temple of sorts. They had their own priestly system. And, and they were faithful to it. They had ministry. They had worship. To all appearances, it looked like they were doing what was right. But now if you ask God about it, God says, I reject all of that. I'm not interested in any of it. It's not sincere and it's not scriptural and it's not sanctified. And I'm not interested in any of it. To the people looking from the outside in, they would have thought, well, they're pretty spiritual. But you see, God knew. And so God tells them, I don't even want any of that garbage. I wrote it down this way. Please don't take this as some kind of commentary on current situations. But it's a day when masks will be removed. Talking about the masks we put on of, of spirituality, the superficial uh, spirituality that we uh, bandy about in the things that, that the public uh, uh, appearances of spirituality and righteousness. On that day, God says, I'm going to call it for what it is. You could also say it this way, it's a day when ministry will be rejected. It's a day, you see, God knows your heart. God knows what you've done and why you've done it. 
And on that day, all those things, and here's what my terror is. My fear is not that I've not been building. I know I've been building. I saved at 10 years old. And I didn't always live for the Lord, but I mean at a fairly young age, by the time I was a late teenager, I was in ministry, and I spent a little more than 10 years now building. I've been building a life. I've been building a testimony. We've been building a church. I don't worry that I've not been building, Brother Charlie. I just wonder how much of it is wood, hay, and stubble. I know you could look at my life, and I've been a Christian now for for 22 years, and you could look at my life and say, He is a Christian. I just wonder if God would look at my life and assess it as being very Christian. And I'm not talking about whether I'm saved or not. I'm saying other people would look and say that man's a Christian. I wonder what God's opinion would be about it. I'll tell you, you can, people can have one opinion and God's opinion can be entirely different. I used to tell young people this when I was a youth pastor. Man, you can fool your teacher. You can fool your preacher. You can fool your youth pastor. You can fool your parents. But you can't fool God. Can I say that's true when you're an adult too? You can fool a lot of people, but you don't fool God. He knows. That's a day when masks will be removed. Uh, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. He said, every man's work on that day, it'll be made manifest. That means brought into the light. He said, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, he didn't say of what size it is or of what scope it is. He said of what sort it is. He said, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now here's what he's saying. He just got through saying we can build either gold and silver and precious stones or we can build wood, hay and stubble. He was saying, when that day comes, how much of what you've done for Christ will pass inspection? How much of it will be left? And what if it will burn up because it was done out of fleshly motives or it was done uh, for the appearance of man and the applause of men or it was done merely out of formality and routine and obligation and you were just like an automaton going about doing what you thought was expected of you. I'm telling you this, you can offer a lot of sacrifices, you can burn a lot of incense, you can give a lot of offerings and every bit of it, God look at it and say, I hate it, I won't smell it, I won't receive it, take it away from me, I don't want to hear your songs because it's not given with the right heart. That's a day when masks will be removed. And then there's one other thing, and I'm just going to mention it and be done tonight. Look at the next verses. Verse 25. He asked him a question. He said, Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? Now, historically, they had. They were given the tabernacle fairly early on in those journeys. And for forty years, they maintained a public form of worship. But this is what God says about it. He said, But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch. Moloch was the god of the Ammonites. He says, And Kion, your images, which was a god of the Babylonians. He said, The star of your god, which evokes another one of the pagan gods, Rephim. And he says this. This is really what, what it comes to. He says, Which ye made to yourselves. It says, you maintained this form of worship, but the whole time you were also worshiping false gods. But he says, you know, really, there was no difference between what you offered to me and what you offered to the false gods. And here's why God says, because at the end of the day, who you were really worshiping was yourself. It's a day, Brother Ken, when motives will be revealed. 
He says, why did you offer to me those 40 years? You did the work, but why did you do it? Did you do it because you loved me? No, he says, if you loved me, you wouldn't worship your false gods alongside the true God. Did you do it because you feared me? No, you didn't do it because you feared me. Because if you did, you wouldn't have carried false idols amongst you. He says, here's why you did it. You did it the same reason you worship those gods, because it was convenient to you, and it made you feel good. So at the end of the day, you were doing it for self-preservation and self-exaltation. says, at the end of the day, your motives were wrong. You were doing it for yourself. Now, can I tell you something? And maybe this is a fine line to draw, but it's in our interest to serve God. But most of us wouldn't serve God if it wasn't in our interest. And the way I know that in my life and the way you know it in your life is how often do we put God in second place? Because it's not in our interest anymore. When it costs us something to serve Him. When it costs us something to serve Him. How often do we push Him to the back and put ourselves first? Wonder how much of what we do for God we're really just doing for us. I believe a man will be healthier, wealthier, and wiser for following the Bible, Brother Ken. But if that's the only reason you're serving the Lord, understand, it may do you some good in this life, but in the life to come, you're going to have to give an account for how and why you've lived your life. We all rejoice in the coming day of the Lord, or, or maybe I should be more distinct. We all, we all rejoice at the day of Christ. We all rejoice at the idea of the return of the Lord for His church. I'm excited about it. I don't know about you. But I do recognize when that day comes, I'm going to have a lot to answer for. Now here's what we do. We don't get discouraged that the Lord's coming back. Instead, we get the things in our life that aren't ready for that day. We get those things ready. We don't look at it and say, well, boy, I dread that day. Some people have that attitude. No, I don't think we should dread that day. I think we should just start living right in this day. You know, the apostle only talked about two days. You've heard me say this before. In Scripture, he'd talk about today, this day. He's talking about whatever day he was pinning that down or speaking that upon. Could have been a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, Friday or Saturday or Sunday. Could have been in June, could have been in September. Didn't really matter. What he was saying is today, this day that I live. And then he would talk about that day. You talk about that day when we'd stand before the Lord. That day when we'd give an account for the things that we have done. That day when we would have to give an answer for the way that we've lived. And you know, the reason the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul is because he got his mind wrapped around the fact that the only two days that really matter in a man's life are this day and that day. Because this day is the day in which we make choices. This day is the day in which we yield to God. This day is the day in which we get uh, dissatisfied with mediocrity and purpose that our life is going to count for something more. And that day is the day when we'll have to give an answer to the one that loved us and bought us for how we've spent every this day that we've ever been given. To what end is it for you? To what end is it for me? I'll tell you this, to what end it is, I want it to be better. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open and you know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. In fact, I'd recommend you don't wait. I'd recommend that might give the devil enough opportunity. So just go ahead and mind the Lord if He dealt with you this evening. If He spoke to your heart, go ahead and obey Him tonight. Find a place at this altar and uh, and say yes to the Lord.
whatever it is he dealt with you about, say yes to him. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.